Well, as Kena said, I am, my name is Chris Taylor, and uh, I am the pastor at Christ Church Bentonville, and I bring you greetings from Christ Church. I want you to know we have uh, prayed for you throughout the course of this last year on a regular basis, and um, grateful, so very grateful um, that the Lord has seen fit to call Wilson here. Um, be hard-pressed to find anybody in the room that's more uh, happier um, than me about that. And uh, it, maybe Eddie. Eddie. Um, and I'm grateful, as I've said before, um, I'm grateful for your ministry to my children and my grandson. Uh, they have been blessed by you over the last eight years, and they will be very sad to go in a year or so, so they're going to soak up this next year. Um, I asked Wilson, he gave me the honor and privilege of introducing this series on scripture and I asked him if there was anything he wanted me in particular to say to you and he gave me a few things that, that I do want to share. Um, it is vital for us as believers uh, to have a solid understanding of the doctrine of scripture. Right, it forms and shapes who we are. And, and if we can't uh, stand on this doctrine of God's word, then all other, uh, all other doctrines fall to the ground. And uh, that's why in our own confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the first chapter is a chapter on Scripture. Um, the goal of this series over the next few weeks is to bolster our faith in God's word and Having been written by men, we of course know that it is uh, God himself who has written scripture by his inspiration through the Holy Spirit. And uh, when we are gripped by uh, its truth, we realize that we uh, aren't really reading scripture ourselves, but scripture is reading us. Right? The same creative power in creation is the same recreative power. In the new creation, all of that is, is through God's word. And so it is very important to us. And so if we want revival, if we want reformation, if we want change, um, if we want to maintain the sufficiency in counseling, if we want to uh, be fruitful in ministry, then we need to be committed to the reformed doctrine of scripture. And so I, again, I have the privilege of, of kicking this off um, for the next few weeks, and we're going to be in, Jason chose that last song because we're going to be in, in, be in Psalm 19 to, this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19, uh, C.S. Lewis said, is the greatest poem in the Psalter. Uh, and it's actually, he said, it was one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And, uh, but this psalm isn't it, the psalm isn't only known for its poetic beauty, it's also known for its clarity regarding God's revelation of himself, and he does that through his world that he's created and also through the word, uh, so much so that it is a proof text for chapter one of, uh, or is a proof text for chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it, also, it is also the proof text for the first chapter of the Belgic Confession. And the Belgic Confession, because the Westminster Confession is more familiar to us, I want to take a minute and read the uh, first portion of, or article, actually it's Article 2 in the Belgic Confession. It's entitled, The Means by Which We May Know God. And it says this, We know God by two means. 
First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. All these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. But then second, it says, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. Beautifully written. But there are a couple of questions that come to mind, at least for me. And the first is, why when it is so beautiful and clear, why is when God's word is so beautiful and clear to us, is this psalm not quoted more in the New Testament? It's obvious that this this psalm was on Paul's mind when he was writing Romans, the, the letter to Romans, particularly Romans chapter 1, uh, but he only quotes it once in any of his letters, and he does so in Romans chapter 10, and it's actually the only time it's quoted in the New Testament. So th- that leads me to the second question, and that is, if it is so beautiful and clear, why, why did we not memorize it uh, when we were in either Awana's um, like, you know, uh, if you were formerly Baptist like many of us, or in vacation Bible school, um, or in any of the other opportunities we had growing up. You know, we, we learned Psalm 23, why not Psalm 19? And the truth is, I don't have an answer to either one of those questions, but my hope is that having heard it read and having heard it preached this morning, that it would become a psalm that's uh, very dear to us, may, uh, may become our most favorite. My wife is actually um, memorizing it. Um, right now. Because the truth of the matter is he has spoken to us. The Lord has spoken to us and he's spoken to us through his world and he's spoken to us through the word. And because he's spoken to us, we need to respond. We have a responsibility to respond. Um, And that's the outline. If you are a note taker, we're going to look at the fact that God has spoken to us through his world, through his word, and we have a responsibility to to respond. And if you would, let's stand once again in the honor of God's word. And I want to read the psalm to us and for us. And as I'll mention in a little bit, because we have um, heard the word, we will have heard from him as he speaks to us. So hear now the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. 
in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of this, your word? Would you grant all of us the spiritual eyes and ears we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding these words of God spoken through David? Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us. And then I would ask that you would refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am unfit for this task to which you've called me, so I pray that you would attend to me as I do this work. I pray that you'd grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and for your church. And we, I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. You may be seated. Well, from 2000 to 2005, I uh, was the pastor of a small church that sat at the base of Sundance Mountain in uh, just north of Colorado Springs in a little town called Palmer Lake. It was on the Front Range, and uh, it was right at the entrance of White River National Forest. And one of, oh, over those five years, the most common response that I would hear from those that I would invite to join us for worship on Sunday morning was, thanks for the invite, but I don't need to go to church to worship because I can go up into the mountains, uh, either hiking or biking, and I can worship there. I don't need organized religion. and I can, I can be in nature and, and be just fine. And of course, there is a bit of truth to that. Um, And we know there's a bit of truth to that based on what David writes here because God has spoken to us through his world. In verse 1 of our text, David says that the heavens that God created declare uh, his glory, the weight and worth of his glory. And the sky and and all that that is in the sky declares or uh, proclaims his handiwork. The splendor of the sun, the splendor of the moon and the stars, the brilliance of the light, the the magnificence of the colors, they announce the Creator's magnificence and majesty. They testify to His splendor and to His brilliance. They proclaim the results of the labor of an almighty, creative, and omnipotent or all-powerful God. Each rising and setting of the sun, each rising and setting of the moon, each and every star that, that is innumerable and count be, uh, cannot be counted, proclaim the perpetual greatness of the maker of heaven and earth. And it's natural and therefore doesn't take any effort whatsoever to move from the magnificence of, of creation to the magnificence of its creator and being in awe of its creator, because it's in our DNA, having been created by him ourselves, having, um, having been created in his image. And that's why Paul does say, he puts it this way in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So when David moves into verses 2 to 4 and says, Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge, there is no speech no, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He simply means that there aren't being words spoken. But even though there aren't being words spoken, what creation announces is clear to us inwardly through a universal language that everyone understands. There's no doubt. Right? His eternal power and divine nature are obvious. They're clearly comprehended to those who have been created in His image. We understand what He's created and what He's announcing because we ourselves have been created by Him. He's communicating, so what He's communicating through creation is not confusing, right? It's completely clear. It's, It's He Himself is not hard to find. He's not hidden in obscurity because every astronomical thing in the heavens, every earthly object, every element, every the largest of stars in the galaxy and the smallest of atoms of helium, every genius of plant, all creatures great and small in the language of the Belgic Confession, his handiwork, all of that announces his existence and proclaims his power and glory. And in verses 5 and 6, David illustrates this. Because he says there's a joy that the sun brings as it inevitably rises in the morning. It's like a bridegroom. The sun is like this, a bridegroom who bursts out of his tent and he's announcing, it's the day, it's the day, it's the day, in all of its excitement. It races across the sky, right? and the light that it produces, and the heat that it produces, and the life that it produces creates this certainty regarding how important it is. And it causes us to acknowledge Earth's dependence upon it. And it announces, it announces the Earth's dependence upon the sun, and because it announces the earth's dependent upon, uh, dependence upon it. It also announces the earth's dependence upon its creator. And just as it announces the earth's dependence upon its creator, it announces our dependence upon our creator. And just as the sun reaches every, every corner, the, the sun and its light reaches into every corner Every, every, uh, no one, nothing, no one can escape its glory. So it is that in the end, every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl, past, present, and future, have, having seen the brilliance of creation and having heard the preaching of creation and are aware of to the one to whom it points, There is a divine creator that is responsible for creation. And as a result, we can say with, with confidence that there's no such thing as a true atheist. But despite 
this marvelous preaching of creation, right? despite this marvelous proclamation, in this gen- what we call general revelation, there, um, there is something greater. Right? There's something greater. Hiking and, hiking and biking in Colorado or driving down or up Moose Alley in Maine in the fall is not enough. And that's where the second stanza comes in. You see, God has not only revealed himself generally through creation, uh, he's proclaimed, he's also, he, he has proclaimed his glory and his power through the world, but he's also revealed himself in a special way. So we move from general revelation to special revelation. He's revealed himself in a special way through his word. Listen to how the Westminster Confession puts it. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave man unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleases the Lord, please the Lord, at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church. And afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, And for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So this all-powerful, almighty God, creator God, has revealed himself to be Yahweh. A personal, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he's spoken. That covenant-keeping God has spoken and continues to speak through what he has spoken. He reveals his will to his people intimately and truthfully and savingly through his written word. And David describes that that word in verses 7 to 9. He says the word's perfect. It means that it's complete, it's whole, it's sufficient, it speaks of comprehensiveness. He says it's sure. In other words, it's reliable and it's trustworthy. He says it's right. And because it's right, it, it shows the right path. It gives correct guidance. It shows us the proper way. It gives us true understanding and direction. He says it's pure. And the word pure means it it speaks of clarity. It means the word is not confusing or puzzling. Paul does refer to its mystery. There are things that are hidden. There are things Uh, That we cannot understand because, of course, He is the Lord. He is is the maker and creator of all that is. But as a general rule, the the word is clear. There is clarity. It is simple and gives distinct direction to us. And then He says it's clean. It's not corrupt. It's... It's not defiled, it's without sin, it's without evil, it's without error. And he says it endures forever. It never changes. It's the same. 
today, or yesterday, today, and forever. It's true and sufficient for all people at all places at all times. Nothing needs to be taken from it or added to it. It doesn't need to be altered depending upon the generation. And unlike the words of men, it can be trusted because it's true and it's righteous, which means it's absolutely dependable and it reflects his holy character. It it reflects his character, It, it reflects his heart. You want to know the heart of God? It's found in the scriptures. And as a result, David says it gives life. It encompasses all that's necessary to restore and to revive and to convert and transform the soul. He says it supplies um, wisdom, making the simple wise. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. So clearly and beautifully, he says the word is sufficient for salvation. That means it's, it's also sufficient for godly living. It's sufficient to tell us what's right and what's wrong. It's sufficient to give us information that we need for any and all circumstances that we find ourselves in. Having called us, He thoroughly equips us. Having justified us, He gives us all we need to be sanctified through His Spirit and Word. And because God has revealed Himself through the world and through his word, like I said, those who, created in, those who have been created in his image must respond. Right? We don't remain neutral knowing that he has, he has condescended and spoken to us. And so how do we respond? Well, there are only really two ways to respond, having heard, having heard from the Lord. And the first is described by Paul in Romans chapter 1. For those without faith, this unending flow of wordless speech, that's what it is, an unending flow of wordless speech that comes from creation. We don't hear audibly through creation, but he speaks to us, a word hasn't been spoken, so this unendless flow for those without faith becomes the motivation to worship the creature rather than the creator. Right? They begin to worship his handiwork rather than he himself, rather than the maker. He says this, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Those without faith suppress the truth. They worship the environment. They worship animals. They worship anything and anything, everything and anything, out of which their heart makes idols. 
Right? They, they turn to their, and, and look into their own hearts rather than the heart of God. They dismiss His Word. They don't just dismiss His Word, but they have an extreme disdain for His Word. They hate it and they mock it because, as Jesus said, they love the darkness rather than the light because their work is evil. And as a result, they unfortunately remain under the curse of the law. And that law condemns, condemns them and judgment awaits. There's no other way to put that. But for those with faith, for those with faith, not only does this unending flow of world, wordless speech that comes from creation, not only does it increase the awe and wonder and joy and worship of the Creator, the Word itself, for those with faith, the Word becomes the most precious of gifts. Listen to David in verses 10 and 11. They, his words, are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So there's appreciation for that wordless speech, but there's also great appreciation for the speech full of words. I love how Pastor Ken Riddlebarger sums this up. He says this, To those who fear God and trust in His promise, these words are more desirable than wealth, possessions, fame, or great military or political power. These are the words which determine what is right and what is wrong. These are the words which reflect who God is and inform us of what He expects of His creatures. These words show us where danger is found. They show us what things place our souls in jeopardy. These are the words which guide us, and when we obey them, bring us lasting and profound satisfaction, a satisfaction which material wealth and fame can never give. And then he says this, they are like guardrails on a freeway or a road sign which warns of hazard ahead. These are the words which reveal to us the will of God. It is here that the key to understanding the meaning of life will be found. Amen. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 12 to 14. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And he acknowledges that the word of God is desirable to him. He acknowledges that because of it, particularly the moral law of God, he's grateful because, it, because, of, because of, of the word, he becomes keenly aware of his sin. Let that sink in a minute. Because the reality is he says he cannot hide from God who he is as a, a truly sinful man. He's not only aware of who God is, he's aware of who he is. He's aware of his sin, both sin that's, 
that he knows, sin that he doesn't know, the sins that he commits knowingly and unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally. But he believes that to be a very, very good thing. He believes that to be a gracious act on God's part. His faith leads him to pray that God would not only reveal his hidden sin so that he can confess it, but that it would also, that he would hear it so that he could receive the forgiveness that only God can provide. He knows that it's only as the Lord intervenes, only as the Lord intervenes, that he will be released from his bondage to sin. And he considers the word precious for that reason. It's only through the Lord that he can be counted blameless. And of course, having been forgiven, knowing his sin and, and knowing that he's been forgiven, his only response is praise and thanksgiving. Having accepted God's word and having been blessed, he now desires that his praise and thanksgiving would be received from, by the Lord. So he has received his word, and then his desire is that the Lord would, would receive his. Because he understands that when guilt is met with grace, the only response is gratitude. He can respond in no other way. So I want us to think about three things. What, what does this mean for us? What are our takeaways? And the first is this. From verses 1 to 6, God, God communicates himself to us through the world he created. So it's important for us to take the time, as, as we walk through life, it's important for us to take the time to smell the roses, among other things. And this means, very practically speaking, this means that taking walks or riding our bikes or hiking in the midst of, of, of creation or having picnics is a wonderful way to enjoy the rest of the Lord's day after worship. We're going to immerse ourselves in the sights and in the sounds and in the textures and the tastes and the smells of His creation. We're to eat and drink and do all things to the glory of God. And as we enjoy those things He has created, we're enjoying Him. And that's how we're to spend our day, appreciating Him, appreciating those gifts He's given those things to us for our good and for our enjoyment. We're to do so thoughtfully and with thankful hearts. Secondly, from verses 7 to 9, because God has communicated himself to us through the word that he has spoken, we should take the time to read it. Take the time to meditate on it. Take the time to study it. Take the time to hear it preached. Beloved, the Bible does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And when we hear the Word of God, we hear Him. And when we hear it read audibly, we hear Him audibly. We hear His heart. 
We hear his character. We don't listen to our hearts. We listen to his. Our culture's fascinated. Right? They're fascinated with the sensational. The culture is enamored by the self. And, and all that has led to, that combination has led to this mystic-like, this, this desire for mystic-like experiences of personal revelation. But those mystic-like personal revelations simply undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. And we need to keep in mind Paul's words when he said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be equipped and complete for every good work. The Bible is sufficient. And in it we have, and, and I believe Austin is going to go into more detail about that in a few weeks. But in Peter's words, right, we have everything that we need that pertains to, to godliness and to life. Which is why David could not only say what he did here in Psalm 19, he would also say in Psalm 119 that he loved God's word and he meditated upon it day and night. He couldn't get enough because he understood its sufficiency. Listen to these words from the larger catechism. Questions 157 and 160. They tell us, the confession tells us how we are to read Scripture and then how we are, uh, what is required of us when we hear it preached. Question 157 says this, or answer 157 says, The Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God and that he only can enable us to understand them. With desire, we're to hear it read with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them. We're to hear it with diligence and attention, or read it with diligence and attention to the matter and scope with them of them. We're to read it with meditation and application, self-denial and prayer. We're to, read it, we're, we're to be serious about what we read. And then question, question or answer 160, tell us how do we hear it preached? And it says it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence and preparation and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. As the word of God, meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their, in, in their lives. This is unlike any other book I hear people all the time say, this, this or that book really changed my life. This is the only book that changes lives. Other books are good, and, and the Lord can use them. Not like this. Not like this. And finally, God intends for us, having revealed himself to us through his world and word, right? his desire is to produce holiness within us. That's what he wants. His will for us is to be sanctified. And he does that by his spirit and word. And therefore we should submit to it as an instrument of our sanctification. We don't, we don't sit in judgment of the word. The word sits in judgment of us. We don't bend it to conform to our wills. 
we bend our wills to be conformed to it. It is our authority. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word pierces, the word penetrates, it divides, it discerns our hearts, it exposes our sin, it exposes our, our faulty way of of ways of thinking. And we need to pray that the Spirit would use it as such. Pray that the, the Spirit would use it as that surgical instrument of sanctification that would reveal and deal with our actions and our thoughts and our desires. Our intentions. Because those things need to be put to death. And it is the exact instrument to do that. And that's scary. I get that. No one, no one likes to be laid bare and made vulnerable. But it is, as I've already said, it is an act of grace. To be called to repentance is an act of grace. It leads us, it, it leaves us bare and exposed. Because he is the only one that can cover. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves in the garden to no avail. Their works were not enough. It was only the work of the Lord that could cover their sin. And so he leaves us bare so that he might cover us. Covers us with the white robe of righteousness of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't leave us naked and bare in the dirt like Ham left his father Noah. He covers us. He covers us. It's in Him, it's in Christ that we find and hide. It's hide and find rest, having been laid bare. It drives us to Christ. And again, by His grace. What's so wonderful for us is that unlike David, right, we have the beauty of seeing things from this side of the cross that David didn't. The Apostle John wrote this, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Paul wrote, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And even Jesus himself said this in his high priestly, high priestly prayer. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth. Right? We have the blessing living on this side of the cross to understand that Christ is the author of both the world and the word. Through which God has spoken. 
He is both the creator and the redeemer. He is the one through whom everything was created physically, and he is the one through whom everything is recreated. He is the one with, through whom physical life comes, and he is the one who, through whom spiritual life comes. He's our redeemer. But as we, we sang earlier, right, he has, he has not only forgiven us, he's not only pardoned us, not only have, has our, have our sins been washed away, for those who turn in faith to Christ, repent of their sins, not only are their sins washed away and pardon received, they're not left morally neutral. We need to be holy, but he's taking care of that as well. Through his active obedience, through his keeping of the law, what he has done, his perfect obedience to the standard of the law has been credited to our account. So we stand before him wholly blameless, without spot or blemish. He's done it all for us. He's met that perfect standard. So again, in the words of Ken Riddlebarger, when we contemplate the glories of God in the heavens, when we see his handiwork throughout the earth, and when we understand that his perfections are revealed in his word, we see something much more than starry skies we see the glorious and perfect work of our Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And with David, we ourselves are able to cry out, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you, O God, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our own lives. May it pass from our ears to our hearts and from our hearts to our lips and our conversation. Would you bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.